is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Chabot. The Mediterranean migrants crisis, did we heed the warnings? The use of American drones, are we being told everything? A hundred years on, the world remembers Gallipoli. And with two weeks to go, the defence issues in the election. We've got to be able to work with other countries. We've got to be able to work across departments within government, which we're not always very good at. More than 1,750 migrants have perished in the Mediterranean since the start of the year, more than 30 times higher than during the same period last year. EU leaders, including David Cameron, are meeting today to discuss the crisis in Brussels. Last Sunday, 800 people died when a boat capsized off the coast of Libya in what's been described as the Mediterranean's worst ever disaster. So, should we have seen the increase in migration from Saharan and Sub-Saharan Africa coming? This was identified as a potential problem two years ago. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is with us as usual. Hi, Christopher. Why has nothing been done about it then? Uh, it's, it's, it's partly been done. What happened is a couple of years ago, there was a, a group which was sponsored by what was the old NATO command south in Italy. And I know about this because I was on, a member of this group. And what we did, we identified the movement, the mass migration of peoples from Syria, from Iraq, uh, from Turkey, actually, a NATO member, uh, and where they would come, and where they would come across, largely across from, from Saharan Africa. We then produced the military side of how you respond to this, and we did it in three or four stages. Uh, one was simply, uh, you had to decide who would be responsible at sea, and this was the most important part because this was not search and rescue because that becomes a political thing but this was what sort of vessels would you have uh, where would you get them from how long would they be there, who would command them what were their terms of reference, so we did that then the second part of it we looked for a, a far more standing force so this could be uh, let's say a year or two years and bring in the United Nations because you need United Nations resolutions for example for a lot of this but we took it right the way through to the final stages the Italians bought this idea straight away uh, the Greeks liked it strangely the Turks liked it because they got part of the problem if you were listened to at the time, why the sudden increase in numbers now? Uh, the increase in numbers was because of the political uh, and military situations, the war situations, let's say in Syria, let's say in Iraq to some extent, but also the extended situations in places like Ethiopia and the possibilities uh, after the collapse of, of a state of Libya um, where you had out outlets for these same people so desperate that they would risk all to, to come across, and, and that we know about. The talk today um, ahead of this meeting in, in Brussels was that perhaps uh, militarily people might be identifying those traffickers before they even set out and getting rid of their, their, their boats. What options are there for Europe? And is this kind of thing really tenable? But the, Yes, because then you get into the third stage thing that we were proposing, and that is that, for example, you're not necessarily putting boots on the ground, but if you've got some forces actually going into international waters, that's fine. But when you start going into territorial waters, you've got to get the United Nations on your side to actually make a resolution to allow you to do that, just as we did, for example, uh, uh, off the little states, the Horn of Africa, etc., in piracy. The other thing you've got to try and do is to get the, some of those countries to invite people to, to come in. But there is there at the moment, and it's a coincidence that tomorrow um, the um, the joint warrior, the big fortnight exercise 
twice a year off Scotland, etc., finishes it. Um, there's a guy that I've spoken to. He is uh, Giovanni uh, Piaggia. He is the captain of the second mine counter warfare uh, standing naval force for NATO. His home is the Mediterranean. His fleet is the, exactly the sort of fleet given a mothership like Bulwark or whatever, a command, a command ship, to go down and take charge of the search, not necessarily the rescue, the search, and, and put the whole thing in control. Well, joining us throughout the programme is a former Royal Marine Major General Julian Thompson, who has acted as a consultant on counter-piracy off the Horn of Africa. Good to see you today, General. Um, talk of the Royal Navy sending a ship to help patrol the area. Do you think this is something that the Royal Navy should get involved in? I think it's something the Navy should certainly get involved in and has the capability. And one of the reasons, of course, I have to say, is because the, the situation in Libya is partly of our making. And therefore, it is our responsibility to try and sort this out. So what exactly would the Royal Navy do? Well, the Royal Navy would, could send in people to help in the, the search for these ships, for these, these vessels. And if it's decided that we will go ahead with a plan that's been mooted, that we should destroy these vessels before people get on them, of mm. course, then they could take part in that as well. It has been suggested, uh, Christopher, that you know, destroying these vessels before um, people get on them is just not possible because destroying every single ship that Libya possesses... Well, it's not destroying everything that Libya possesses. <clears throat> it's actually destroying the sort of vessels that you use, like uh, largely sort of like large fishing vessels or, or, or whatever, but almost anything that floats. You can actually do that, uh, but you've also got to take it to the next stage. Um, and the next stage is actually start to look at who is involved in this. Mm. And Now, for example, you, you've got 20-odd European and NATO nations. You're looking for small vessels. Now, those countries, most of those countries, you don't send aircraft carriers down there, most of those countries actually got those small vessels, but then you have to have a determination to say do we actually send in special forces do we, for example, wind up half a dozen drones and start going up, but eventually you've got to get to the guys that are actually organising it. Julian Thompson you were saying this is partly of our making if that's the case, then what else could we be doing apart from thinking of military solutions? Well, I, d I don't think that we want to be trying to take them in and saying we've got open house in Europe and that would be terrible uh, for them and for us. But what we've got to do is try and stop it and the way you stop it one of the ways you stop it is by destroying the vessels and the other as, as Christopher has, has, has alluded to is you try and find out who the guys are organising this and with a bit of intelligence and, and uh, other means there is a way of finding this out. Gentlemen, stay with us. Well, one of the most senior army officers of the last decade has suggested that any future government should cut back spending on the country's nuclear deterrence to protect numbers of conventional forces. General Sinek Parker, former Commander Land Forces, was speaking ahead of the BFBS defence election debate on Friday. Tomorrow, Trident has featured in all of the major political parties' electoral campaigns. Speaking to James Hurst, General Parker said tough decisions will have to be made in the next defence spending review. We're facing complex transnational threats that ebb and flow and you don't meet them with serried ranks of tanks, aircraft and ships. You meet them with a coordinated collaborative coalition approach to security. So we've got to be able to work with other countries. We've got to be able to work across departments within government which we're not always very good at. And we've got to be able to work with sectors, so with industry, with the private sector, with the international non-government organisations. What's your view on the 2% figure, its importance, and what's your view on whether we could cut further? It's a stick to beat people with. 
but I'm not sure how really important it is. Let's define the requirement and then see how much the requirement costs, decide what needs to be done now, and decide if you can allow anything to wait for when financial conditions improve. But, but to, to beat people over the head with a 2% rise, but what we should be saying is a commitment to the necessary levels of defence capability. My assessment of the cuts that we had to make in 2010 was that they were done because they could be done, because it was essential to make savings as quickly as possible, and we needed to see what we could do to meet the financial requirements at the time without breaking down our final commitment to Afghanistan, which was critical, and making sure that we kept as much capability as possible. Could, could we make further savings in defence and, and still have the level of resource and capability we need? Very pushed to do so, but... If you look down particular silos, it may be possible. What, where I'm worried is that we have cut back in certain critical areas. You know, the number of surface ships, the number of people. There are, there are certain things where there is a critical mass that produces what I would describe as a foundation of capability. What I'm not suggesting is that you should have lots of fantastic technical equipment. You need to have a core capability... And then, really importantly, you need to have the capacity to adapt, develop and expand if the situation emerges where you need to do so. What's your view on how important it is or isn't to keep continuous at sea nuclear deterrent? In my opinion, it is important to maintain a nuclear capability because it is something which, which provides you with an option. My concern is that we're going to keep what you would describe as a long-stop option and fail to have your front line properly, properly populated. So there is absolutely no point in having a long-stop if you haven't got somebody to bowl the ball and bat the bat. If, if when you do your review, there is a clear hole in your ready force and the only way, in the grand strategic way that it can be funded, is through... Trident, then I believe that's where the balance needs to be made. And that was General Sir Nick Parker. Well, Christopher, your thoughts on what General Parker said. Do you agree that too much is being made of that 2% figure? That 2% is just a is just a nonsense figure that was agreed 10 years ago at NATO meeting. And it is a guideline so everybody ought to have spend 2% of their gross domestic products on defence. It is nowadays, that was, that was fine when we were still thinking in, in, in different terms like Cold War terms. Uh, the problem today is that you, you've, got, you've got to have different types of forces. So you've got to work out what government policy is. And when they've worked out what their foreign policy is, they go to the military. They say, right, can you actually uh, support that with military? Uh, and the military say, yes, we can. And this is how much it costs. Then you've got to work out whether you're going to do it or not. It's interesting, for a perfect example of this, where the, where the general was talking about, well, you know, we've got to be act as a coalition, etc. You know, we've been a coalition in NATO since 1949. <laughs> and quite frankly, on too many occasions, we cannot work together for political reasons and also for very simple reasons. For example, if you get two tanks going along, one from Germany and one from the United Kingdom, you might find you can't refuel the one from Germany because you've got different sort of couplings and, and, and things like this. But it's, it's this 2% figure is, is not necessarily nonsensical, uh, but it, it covers up the real problem, and that is what you spend the money on and what you continue to do. Because if you decide you want to buy something, let's say in 2015 you're going to be using that in, say, in 2050. Julian Thompson, he said that personnel are more important than the latest high-tech equipment, including Trident. Do you agree? Well, personnel are always more important, but I, 
also think that his analogy of the long stop is a very good one. Trident is a long stop. Uh, but without the short stop, you may not. You may be either forced to use the long stop or be bluffed into not using it because you're, you haven't got to that stage. And so you do need balanced forces, and you do need equipment as well because there's no good going to war without without equipment. And the balance that has to be struck is is how much you spend on what. Mm. And what it all actually comes down to is something that we haven't got in this country, which is a strategy. There's no strategy. No one knows actually what it's all for. Well, a pre-election poll for BFBS suggests strong public support for protecting the armed forces from further cuts, but the Comrades survey also found mistrust of politicians to make the right decisions on the future of the armed forces. From Westminster, here's more from James Hurst. 60% of those responding thought spending the NATO target of 2% of national income on defence is important, but with more government spending cuts expected, 72%, almost three-quarters, thought protecting the size of the armed forces is important, but only 30% said they trust politicians to take the right decisions on the future of the armed forces. Support for keeping a continuous-at-sea nuclear deterrent is more divided. 54% said it was important, 32% said it was unimportant. But only around one in eight voters list defence and combating terrorism in their top three election issues. That still ranks it alongside unemployment. James Hurst there. Christopher, are you surprised by the poll findings? No, not surprised. But you've got to look at, we're coming back to this sort of 60%, saying, well, you know, you've got to have 2%. It's an example of understanding headlines. The 2% is a headline, but understanding nothing more. They don't understand what you spend that 2% on. Uh, the other side of it is, uh, well, uh, it's, it's an operational shape that you have to have, not say we're concerned about the size of the armed forces. 30% say they trusted politicians to make decisions on the future of the armed forces. Um, they don't trust politicians hmm. on, on anything. But the other part of it, the only one in eight list defence and combating terrorism in their top three election issues. Co- election issues. Of course it's true. You know, A&E, where do you take your dad when he's had his heart attack? You take him to A&E because you can't go to the GP anymore. Mm. That's what, Those are the things that really matter, as Mr Cluton said. Is the economy stupid? Yeah, Julian Thompson, uh, the economy's stupid, but um, do you think defence really has been talked about enough in the run-up to this election? No, I don't think it has, but it's been talked about more than I can remember it being talked about for a very long time, which is, which is, which is actually encouraging because people are starting to think about it. But I go along with what Christopher says. In the end, when it comes, push comes to shove, you're worried about are you going to get your grandfather to A&E? But it is politicians' job not to get put off by that. They've still got to provide that, but they should be thinking higher, saying, OK, guys, we understand that this worries you, but defence is very important. Mm-hmm. Well, SITREP is joining up with Forces TV and the Royal United Services Institute for the 2015 defence election debate. You can hear it here on BFBS at 6pm tomorrow, 7pm if you're listening on BFBS Radio 2, and you can watch it on Forces TV also at 7pm. SITREP with Kate Still to come, as the use of drones increases, we ask, is it really the right way forward? And a hundred years on, what did we learn from Gallipoli? This is BFBS 
Sid Rap. The United States has used drones in several countries in recent years, including Afghanistan, Iraq and Yemen. They remain extremely controversial, and while the CIA claims they are the most precise weapon ever created, they've also been blamed for the deaths of hundreds of civilians. A new book, Sudden Justice, America's Secret Drone Wars, looks at their role in modern warfare and at how their use is increasing. Well, the book's author is investigative journalist Chris Woods, a former BBC Panorama producer, and he joins us now. Good to see you, Chris. Um, your book suggests there's a covert war involving drones going on, which many people know nothing about. Is this sinister, what's taking place, do you believe? It's certainly a major part of American foreign policy right now. So around one in five of all American drone strikes are away from the hot battlefield in places like Pakistan, Yemen and Somalia, targeted killings, targeted assassinations, as uh, Colin Powell called them a couple of years back. Countries like Britain, uh, France, probably would consider those strikes unlawful. Uh, I don't think we would ever see British drones operating away from the hot battlefield in that way. Uh, they're the controversial ones, but in fact 80% of uh, armed drone strikes, as I, as I found out from my book, are actually taking place on the regular battlefield, where bizarrely we actually knew less about what was happening there with drones uh, than we did in places like Pakistan, where it's been a very well-covered story. And do you believe there needs to be more transparency about what's happening when drones own strikes take place. Absolutely. I think there needs to be, it should be a commitment of all militaries really towards transparency, particularly because the question of civilian casualties, non-combatant casualties, is so crucial now to winning hearts and minds, to winning wars, or at least not losing wars. Uh, and one of the problems we found with armed drone use is that it tends to get very tightly bound up in secrecy because the CIA, for example, is carrying out so many American drone strikes. So stuff that we might normally expect to be released about the use of a weapon is very highly classified by the Americans and that can also have knock on uh, to the British for example who've been restricted in some of the things they've been able to release about their own drone use. Of course the CIA says they are extremely efficient is there how much of a gap do you think there is between official figures on how many civilians are killed in the process and the reality? Uh, a significant gap. I mean, the CIA has claimed that it's killed no more than 50 to 60 civilians in Pakistan, for example. The best public estimates, and these are supported by uh, the UN, by the Pakistan government itself, put the civilian casualty range at around four to 500 civilians killed. Now, that's a tiny number proportionally compared to previous wars. For example, the carpet bombing of even of Vietnam just 30, 40 years ago led to tens of thousands of civilians killed. So relatively... These are much more precise weapons. But we do kill, uh, still kill civilians. And I think to claim, as the Americans often do, that the numbers are very, very low or even zero, as they've sometimes claimed, is, I think, dangerous. I think it leads us into this, uh, this belief that war has somehow got safe. Uh, of course, war is never safe and, and never particularly healthy for civilians. Just out of interest, in researching your book, how much cooperation or otherwise did you get? Uh, absolutely zero from the CIA <laughs> officially, although I actually uh, did manage to interview some, some very senior former uh, US intelligence officials from the conventional uh, US military, very helpful indeed, and from, from the UK military here as well, uh, and from the Israelis, actually. So from the military side, I had great cooperation. From the intelligence side, well, officially, not really at all. Mm, uh, the use of drones is surely only going to increase, and with their reliability and accuracy, will, will that improve, do you think? I think 
Precision is only ever relative. I mean, Graham Lamb, former commander of the British Army, said you have to be careful with this idea of precision. Precision just means you get your bomb to where you want it to go. But what the bomb does is the question. It depends on the size of the bomb. It depends on the, on the warhead. depends who you're targeting. depends on who's in the vicinity. depends what the building is. You know, we can get overexcited about this concept of precision. Yes, we are more precise than, than we were 10 years ago. We will probably be even more precise 10 years down the line. But that new precision brings with it greater obligations as well. Uh, civilians expect to be better protected on the battlefield now. So when we do kill them, we have to have answers as to why we've killed them. Julian Thompson, are drones an inevitable part of modern-day warfare? Yes, because it completely changes the game in many directions. For example, it hasn't got a person on board, so the person on board doesn't get tired. There isn't a person on board. It doesn't want to eat. They can stay in the air for, for a very, very long time indeed. Uh, there's no risk if it gets shot down of the pilot being beheaded in public. So it's, it's easier for governments to use drones because the risk to them mm. is less than it was when using fixing, you know, a manned aircraft. Uh, Chris, um, is there any worry about the proliferation of drones and whose hands they might fall into? I'll just take an example that there's a report today that a drone containing radioactive material has been found having dropped something on the roof of, a, of the Japanese Prime Minister's office. Yeah, I mean, the drones that I t I'm writing about in the book are really the, the strategic drones, the ones that are controlled using satellites from thousands of miles away, costing, you know, technologies costing billions of dollars. The real proliferation is going to be in the little handheld ones that we can all fly from our mobile phones, and they're the ones that we tend to see a lot of the scare stories about almost hitting jumbo jets or, you know, being too close to military airfields and so on. Mm. So we have to be careful which drones we're talking about. Drones mm. are going to become just a part of everyday life, both in, in our in our ordinary lives of citizens and in warfare but different drones do different things Alright, Chris Woods, thank you very much for your time today Chris Woods' uh, book Sudden Justice America's Secret Drone Wars is out now This is BFBS SIGREP it's claimed the lives of 100,000 people and is considered to be one of the most disastrous campaigns in modern warfare. This year marks the centenary of the first bloody battle on the shores of Gallipoli. It will be remembered across the UK and in Turkey with special ceremonies and exhibitions. The anniversary is especially poignant for the people of Australia and New Zealand. 8,500 Australians and nearly 3,000 New Zealanders lost their lives. Well, still with us is General Julian Thompson. Uh, you're one of the authors of a book on this, Gallipoli, which is out now, Julian, a defining campaign. Did anything positive actually come out of it? Yes, very positive, because it was such a nonsense, and we learnt so much from it. And, of course, in the Second War came along, everybody rushed back to study Gallipoli. In fact, they were studying between the wars to find out how to get it right. And we got it right over a series of king-sized amphibious operations in the Second World War, and we still get it right on amphibious operations. I was taught all the lessons of Gallipoli as a young officer. And because of that, it was not a waste of life, it, because we learnt so much from it. It was a disaster, it was a terrible disaster, but we did learn from it, and so that's the bright side of it. Christopher? I tell you, uh, well, I, I don't get the sort of, um, nowadays, the what we've learned. What I do get is the echoes. For example, if you go back to March 19th... Why don't you get what we've learned? Uh, because I don't believe you learn anything from 100 years back. I mean, let's be realistic. You think do you, you do, and it's OK for Did the classroom. Did you learn anything from studying Gallipoli? Yes, you well, learned, you you learned about... Well, you 100 years back himself. <laughs> yeah, I get back 100 years himself. No, you do, you do. You do. For example, they didn't do any reconnaissance before they landed, 
And in the Second World War, a guy called Clogston Wilmot, long name, set up a thing called the COPS, the Combined Operations Piloted Parties, because he realised they hadn't done recce's. Come on, Julian, And you, you need to do these sort of that's things. That's fine. You, you got the lessons from the Second World War. What I'm saying is from 1915, there's not a great deal that happened then um, that you say, right, now we know from Gallipoli we shouldn't do certain things. But what we do get is echoes. What happens, uh, for example, uh, the Middle East? What do we hear the debates about Syria, for example? Are we going to do boots on the ground? You no way are we going to do boots on the ground, etc. So you go back, March, uh, March uh, 1915, they sent in these old dreadnoughts, these old uh, naval ships with 15-inch guns, and they said, right, we're going to bomb them. It's the equivalent of us sending in the Air Force shock and all, right? We'll bomb these people into, sort of, into the Stone Age. Uh, didn't work. So they said, right, we need soldiers. We need to put soldiers on the ground. They said, oh, I don't know about that, you know. Hmm. Uh, we'll have to think about that. Well, any of the soldiers turned up in... It, uh, in, in, in April. What I'm saying is that there are echoes. We make the same mistakes mm. all the time. We make the same assumptions all the time. Let's talk about... But there are, there are, there, that is a lesson. All these are lessons because uh, one of the things that Gallipoli went wrong was that the Admiral and the General spent a lot of the time apart in the planning. So they screwed it up because one lot was doing one thing, one lot was doing the other. They forgot about the logistics. And these lessons get retaught time and time and time again. And that's why Gallipoli is important, because it was the first modern amphibious campaign mm -hmm. in history, 1915. And they were, they were doing it with, with uh, uh, modern weapons. And they made such a cock of it, if I may use that expression, that it's an absolute checklist of, of what, what not to not do. Not to do. Mm. Yeah, I tell you... This thing about where, where was the admiral and where was, where was the general, for example, I mean, the general was at sea as well as wasn't he, uh, uh, until he got relieved. It strikes me the same as, as the war I always think about you, 1982. So we've <laughs> I can't wait on. to hear what you're going to say on, now. No, no, we've, we've got this guy who's commanding um, uh, the, uh, the commando brigade, yes, three brigade. Uh, he's on the land. Of course, we're he, talking about the Falklands. Yeah, the Falklands, here. 82. You've got Margaret Thatcher saying, I want victory, I want victory, I want victory, and putting the pressure on this guy who is, <laughs> is, is on the land. And then you've got the so-called task force commander, which really wasn't a task force <laughs> commander, uh, Abram Woodward, sitting in his ship. Who is actually command? Who is the man okay. that's on the spot who can do this? Same thing as Gallipoli so, was happening so gen in so, so, General, w when you were there in the Falklands, did you think, OK, Gallipoli, this is how they did it, this is how we're not going to do it? No, no, good God. <laughs> no, you, you, didn't, you don't think like that. But in your DNA as an amphibious guy like I am are certain things you recognise. You know, recognize, I've never heard anyone describe themselves like that. Don't do it, because if you do, mm. it'll go wrong. And I said to the commander of the commanding brigade in the, in the Iraq operation in 2003 when mm. he told me that he couldn't get his armour ashore. I said, did you do a beach recce beforehand? No. I really? Said, I Seriously? can't believe it. And the reason was, was the SBS were all playing games in the middle of Iraq and were not available to do the beach recce. So, OK. Uh, so that, and, you know... Sounds um, incredible, doesn't it? Um, uh, let's just talk about some positive things uh, from Gallipoli. Many acts of bravery, individual acts of heroism... What was it six VCs before breakfast one day? Are there any particular acts that stand out to you? To me, one of the greatest things was a submariner called Naismith who took his submarine up through the Narrows and Dardanelles three times. Now, the trick of going through the Dardanelles is that it's full of salt and fresh water. 
which is anathema to submarines, because if you're in salt water, you bob to the surface, and if you're in fresh water, you go to the bottom. So trying to trim the submarine to go through this mixture, this sort of cake of layer cake of different kinds, means the submarine keeps porpoising, which means it comes to the surface at the wrong moment. And Naismith, at one stage, was coming back down through, and he heard a bang, bang, bang on the side of the submarine. He got up a bit, looked through his periscope, and saw he was towing a mine down through the narrows. He didn't tell his crew. (laughs) He went on. He was awarded a VC. And I think that sort of cold, calculating courage is probably more difficult than the hot, you know, I'm going to kill you because you're about to kill me sort of courage. There was, there was another thing. There was snipers, bad news, especially for the people that were landing there. So some guy invented, put his gun on a, on a periscope. Mm. So instead of sticking his head over the, over the parapet was going to get blown off, he stuck his gun up, looked up in the periscope, and he could see where the firing was coming from. But I think the final thing we shouldn't forget about the uh, Gallipoli, we tended to talk about Anzac and Anzac Day. The British... There were 79,000. 79,000 French went to that war. 79,000 French. Um, 400,000 Turks. 74,000 uh, Anzacs. 141,000 people were killed mm. in, in Gallipoli between April and the withdrawal at the end of the year. That's quite a death rate. And uh, Julian Thompson's book, Gallipoli, is out now. Um, just before we go, let's just look ahead uh, at other things going on at the moment. And Christopher, uh, North Korea, it appears its nuclear arsenal bigger than ever thought. But also an interesting feat by Kim Jong-un. Yeah, he's been up a mountain. It's 9,000 feet tall. And his, his lads were up there, his army was up there. But he turned up in a, in a very smart overcoat, a crombie, yeah. And uh, very nice suedes. I thought, but I Bro- thought you know, to go up a brogues. snow-capped mountain. But, but then I thought to myself, hang on. If you go back to Mallory, he went up Everest in a three-piece suit. <laughs> and that is all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests, Julian Thompson, Chris Woods, and of course our defence analyst, you, Christopher Lee. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS Sitrep. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye for now. News, news, sport, sport, and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.